Welcome to the podcast of Thank God It's Friday. I'm Richard Glover, and as you may have noticed, our TGIF regular, Tommy Dean, has been missing from our panel. He's back in America for a couple of months. And while we've missed him on TGIF, he's instead been joining us with a weekly letter from America. So if you're keen on catching up with him, stay listening at the end of this podcast for Tommy Dean's Letter from America. But first, this week's TGIF. Thank God it's... And welcome to our special isolation lockdown series of Thank God It's Friday. We don't have our live audience, but we do have the chance to get to know our TGIF regulars a little better. So in the next few weeks, we'll talk about life, love and laughter with various members of our TGIF team. Today, in the first half of the hour, it's the fabulous Gary Eck. His career includes stand-up, but also writing and directing, work on uh, blockbuster films like Happy Feet. Then, after the news at 5.30, it's Wendy Harmer, two-time queen of Sydney radio, first commercial, then the ABC, with a career that includes stand-up, TV's The Big Gig, and international success with her children's series, Pearly. So, I'm Richard Glover, inviting you to sit back and enjoy TGIF. The ISO series. Thank God it's Friday with Richard Glover. Gary Eck has performed stand-up around the world but also has a career in film. He co-wrote and co-directed Happy Feet 2 alongside Academy Award winner George Miller and uh, and co and sorry and co-wrote uh, and, and also co-wrote the Clark, the cult classic You Can't Stop the Murders. He won Tropfest with his film The Money. So how did all this begin for him? Well, Gary Welcome. Thanks for joining us. Richard, thank you for having, uh, having me on the show. It feels kind of weird just being the only one, but, uh, you know. We'll dig deep, you see. That gives us the chance. Mm. Let me begin to dig deep with this little piece of information I happen to have. Your sister... <laughs> be even nervous. Your sister says you didn't speak for your whole first year at school. That's true. Um, I didn't say anything because I, I guess I didn't have anything to say. But um, I, I, it's, it's really weird. My mum, I don't quite remember it, but my mum says, you know, the teacher was a bit worried because she said, oh, look, you know, Gary just doesn't say anything. He, he kind of just sits there. But then one day apparently I did. They put on this play and this, this kid came out wearing this funny hat and I just stood up and I said, oh, you look like a dickhead. <laughs> and that was it. <laughs> and and that's, he's never shut and up the since. Yeah, I didn't shut up since. So that was I was kind of my first foray into comedy was heckling. So maybe so it was that's kind because, of reverse. Mm. And maybe that's the comedy story that you, you found you got a laugh. Well, it's interesting when you it is. It's not that you go looking for them. It's they're often just unexpected, and then you say something, and then someone laughs, and you go, "Oh, okay." That's interesting. I say these things and or I do these things and people react and then it becomes kind of addictive, I guess. Why do you think you were quiet up to that point? Um, well, I don't know. I, I mean, I wasn't that old. I was, you know, five or six. 
But um, I guess I was very observant. Like, my, you know, my daughter's very similar. Like, you know, she's sort of just curious and, and, and just kind of observes the world and doesn't necessarily say, you know, too much until, you know, necessary. Mm-hmm. Um, now you can't shut me out of, shut me out of course. I'm just, you know, I keep babbling on, talk forever. You're quite, uh, the other, this is more information from your sister. I'm afraid. You're also, quite, you're also quite short. You were the shortest kid in the class for or most of your schooling. I, oh, I know, yeah. I was really short. Like up until year 11, I, I was the shortest kid. In fact, I, I don't think I started growing until I was in year 12. And, and to give you an idea, because I went to school in Canberra and we went to Hawker College, which is kind of separate from high school. And my sister, Karen, who's obviously, you know, rung in before, giving you all this information, but she was the year ahead. And I, 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 when I arrived in year 11, I went into the library and my sister was there with her friends and her friends turned to my sister and said, oh, look, the librarians brought her son in. <laughs> um, and I was like, and that was like, no, that's my brother. And I was so short. Like, I remember sitting next to a guy who was uh, an exchange student from America and he, he kept looking at me during mass and he goes, what, are you some sort of child prodigy or something? I don't understand. Like, how old are you? Um, and I was just short. I think, my, honestly, I think my parents had hopes for me to be a jockey. I think that was their kind of goal. <laughs> um, now, tell me, tell, me about your, tell me about your parents. Because you, you, you've told stories on TJF of being in Singapore or being in Tokyo or yeah. all sorts of things. What, what, what were your family doing that you travelled around a little bit? Uh, well, my dad was on the run. And <laughs> um, so we just had to kind of keep a low profile. But, uh, well, no, he, he, he was kind of in the diplomatic corps. So he went to Japan. So I was born in Japan. And then we came back, to, you know, to, to Sydney for a while and then back over to Singapore. You know, so I was there for four or five years. Um, you know, and then back to Sydney, then back to Canberra. Uh, so it was this kind of whirlwind tour. But, I, you know, it was fantastic. I never really questioned it um, at the time because I was just young and just kind of expected it. But um, it, was, it was a great opportunity. Just, you know, it opened my eyes up to a whole world of stuff that I think most kids at that time would never experienced. And I just remember coming back to, to Sydney, especially after Singapore, and just going, where, you know, where's all the you know, the murder bar and char siu rice and all these dishes that we would just feast on constantly. Um, and, you know, I had to, I had to, I had to get like a, a pie and sauce or a chicken roll or, you know, um, that was the Australian cuisine. That was the best of international cuisine. I wonder if that's what makes you a watcher. Again, one of the great t- tools of, of stand-up comedy, and we were talking about this to, to Jeff Green the, the other day. You know, he's British and he came to Australia. Mm. And he said it's really when he first came to Australia that was a magic time for him because he's seeing everything freshly. And he says you do run out, run out of that kind of perception ability after a while. But I suppose this might have been one of your great advantages of, for, for comedy is that you've got these fresh eyes because you've moved around a bit, a bit as a child. Yeah, and I think there's just something inherent in comedians as well, where they just perceive the world differently to everyone. They don't kind of just accept it; they kind of question it and and don't take anything for granted. And and almost inside, they're a little bit argumentative. They're going, "Well, why is that happening? Oh, that's really annoying. Why is that person doing that? Why are they doing that? Should they be doing that?" So you kind of constantly have this sort of 
thought process in your head, I think. And I think that's a kind of a genetic thing. So when you're thrown into a world that's totally fresh and alien, then those processes just really come to the foreground and you really start to notice things. Um, and I think that is kind of what comedy is. It's like noticing things that everyone has kind of failed to notice, but they're really obvious when you point them out. Yeah, and as soon as you say it, everyone says, of course, exactly. Yeah, Gary, Eck is, Gary Eck is here. Third observation from your sister. Gary did his first gig at the university bar, and it was a total disaster. <laughs> Hang on, True which gig false. is she referring to? True or false? Um, that's at the university bar. No, that's not true. Will you tell no, us? Well, my first gig um, was actually at the private bin in Canberra, which was like a nightclub that advertised um, comedy. They started comedy there on a Wednesday night and they advertised on local radio on like 104.7 for local comedians. You know, it was one of those ads, give the private bin a call, your chance at comedy stardom. Give us a call now. The, and the I was private at uni bin, and I, the, private, the private bin, which was nicknamed locally the rubbish bin, because yeah, of the stand yeah. of the clientele past about 10.30 at night. Oh, that's right, because you'd be familiar. Yeah, that, it was it was horrendous nightclub. And and the comedy night, which is on a Wednesday, uh, attracted like 90% ad for cadet students. Um, so there were these young guys. Australian defence. Uh, there's Dun Troon. defence. Dun Troon, yeah. So they're yeah. very, this kind of young, wild crowd. Um, and so anyway, I rang the guy who was advertising and, you know, left a message on the answering service machine and he calls me back. He says, oh, mate, you're the only one who's called. I've been running those ads for two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> you got, you got to come in and you got to do something. I got, I want, I need an, I need a local MC. So I thought, ah, oh, you know, I, I didn't have any material and I thought, oh, well, I'll just, I, I hadn't even seen live stand up. I haven't even seen a live Australian comedian. I'd, I'd seen the big gig, you know, I'd seen Wendy Harmer on the big gig and, and comedians on that and, and always thought, wow, that's amazing. How, how do you do that? Um, so Why I don't I, I learn in front of an angry crowd of defence guys? <laughs> well, the thing is, the first gig I did, I went up there, I was so nervous. I was just unbelievably nervous. I'd just been shaking and sweating for the whole day. Um, and I, I eventually got on and... And I, I was there to introduce one of the comics from Sydney. I can't remember who it was, but it was probably someone like Ostentatious or Richard Carter or something, you know. And they, um, I think, I, you know, I, I recall doing okay. But looking back, it probably was pretty sh shoddy. But it was enough to get me through. And then I kind of got a bit cocky. And I thought, oh, this is great. You know, I'll, next week I'll come up with a whole brand new five minutes. <laughs> so I go out the next week and then I just die. I tank so much. And the crowds just, they, they're with you if they love you, but the minute, you know, you're just bothering them for five seconds and they, you know, they, they don't think you're funny, they, they just turn and they were just like, oh, yeah, get off, mate, get off, you're wasting our time. I'm like, wasting your time, it's free. What are you talking about? <laughs> you didn't pay any cover charge. <laughs> and, then, you know, and that's the thing about comedy is, like, people really treat you like, if you, if you don't make them laugh, they, they look at you like you've just ruined their day they, and they get really angry at you. And I find I don't understand why. It's not like I'm, I'm trying my hardest here. <laughs> like, give me a go. And, and they look at you like, oh, mate, thanks very much for that. You know, you've ruined everything. <laughs> Gary, Gary Eck is here. 
why then do you why then do you continue doing it like why did you at that point not give up why did you press on mate i when i started doing it i just thought oh I, this I've got to do it. And at the time as well, I remember the comedians who were coming from Sydney and Melbourne, the feature acts, they were getting paid $400 for the show. And I couldn't believe that. I just thought, wow, $400 to do this. And this is going back nearly 30 years, right? Um, and I thought, wow, imagine that. They must be getting this every night. But at the time, I didn't realise that was their gig for the month. That's all they did. Right? There weren't a lot of gigs. But... I mean, beside the point, I, I just thought, wow, this, this looks like fun. I could really, I really want to do this. And then I remember one night Akmal Sali came down and, and he performed at the bin and we, we really connected. We really clicked and we started talking and, and he said, oh, mate, you should just come down to Sydney and, you know, that's, that's probably a better place to go and do stand up down there. So I kind of went, you know what? I, when I finish uni, that's what, I, that's what I'll do. I'll go down there and I'll give it a crack. And, and just try all the open mic nights and, and see what happens. Because I really didn't, to be honest, Richard, I, once I started doing it, I thought, you know what? I don't want a job. I, <laughs> I don't want a real job. I, I, I didn't even apply for anything after uni. I, I, I occasionally I sent in an application and just put a whole bunch of spelling mistakes and, you know, like don't employ this guy in a million years just in case I, I got an interview. So, it was, so it was kind of like, a, you know, and, and and so it was to be. And Gary went on to perform around the world, Edinburgh, Sydney, mm. Melbourne comedy festivals, at big audiences and sometimes small audiences. Let's hear a little bit of Gary Eck talking quite recently about maybe the smallest crowd he's ever had. It's nice to do a, a, a crowd, to be honest. I did a show, I'm not making this up, two weeks ago at the Harold Park Hotel, right, where I performed to two people. <laughs> And get this, after the show, I actually gave the audience a lift home. <laughs> I'm not, I swear, I'm not making that up. They were sitting down the front. I'm just chatting to them. What else am I going to do? I said, oh, where do you live? They said, Leichhardt. I said, oh, I'm in Haberfield, right? <laughs> do you want a lift? And I just said it as a joke, right? And they're like, oh, yeah, that'd be great. <laughs> wow. Well, I've never been to a show and had a lift before. Oh, this works out really well. Ask him if he's going to Cairns on the weekend. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to do it. I'm going to honour it because it's not often you get to drive the audience home. Like Seinfeld can't boast of driving the entire crowd home, right? I could and I did. And then get this, as I'm driving them home, they started bagging the show. <laughs> Going, oh, there weren't many people. Oh, shut up, I'm giving you a lift. It doesn't get any better than this. I didn't hear their response uh, because they're in the boot. <laughs> <laughs> Gary Eck with the night he performed to two people and, uh, and <laughs> drove them home. That is one of the things. You go from, it must be a roller coaster, from these nights where it's huge and you go down well to these nights where something mm. goes wrong. Well, even that night where there were two people, it was actually a really fun show. Um, like, I, it, it wasn't a bad show. Like, they were the two people that were actually really into the show and having a good time and laughing. And, and then when I actually said, oh, do you want to lift? And I said it as a joke. <laughs> they kind of took that on as like, you know, Gary's really friendly with us because I've been talking with him the whole night that, yeah, yeah, well, that'd be great, thanks. And I thought, oh, well, I might as well. I've never get. it was a rare opportunity to give <laughs> the audience a lift home. And but it, leads, it, to, yeah. leads to more material, of course, which is the, the glory of it. 
tell, tell me, we've talked a bit about stand-up, but that's only one mm. half of your life in, in a way. You, the other half of your life is in the film business with the, mm. the uh, Tropfest winner really quite early on and then uh, mm. the You Can't Stop the Murders, pretty significant film. But I suppose most significant of all is, is Happy Feet, Happy Feet 2, al- alongside George Miller. You're the co-writer, co-director. Mm. How does something like that come about and what is the experience like? And, of course, what's the experience like of, of working with someone like Robin Williams? Yeah, so, I mean, to answer the first part, I, you know, I'd been making a bunch of short films and, you know, getting involved in Tropfest, and, which I loved because it was a sort of, a, I guess, something that I, I could relate to in terms of stand-up because you're effectively showing something in front of a huge live crowd again, and I loved seeing that response. So I started making these short films, and then I won with the money, and because George Miller's company, Kennedy Miller Mitchell, um, they were one of the sponsors. So George was always, you know, across all the, the winning films and, and those that got submitted, he used to watch them. And then I did a, a little comedy album called The Hollywood Motel with Lee Perry, which was kind of like a narrative kind of comedy album set in a fictitious motel, hotel in, in, in Los, Los Angeles with, you know, Lee Perry doing a lot of the kind of character voices and myself. And, and George got a hold of that and he really loved it. And, and then he, I think he'd seen a couple of my other short films. And then I got an invite to um, the premiere of the first Happy Feet in Sydney. It was just being shown at, you know, George Street. And it was at six o'clock and I thought, oh, I'll, go into, I'll go into town, I'll go to the gym and then I'll, um, I'll go see the premiere. So I went to the gym and I completely forgot because I to, to wear it to get a change of clothes. I just wore my gym clothes into town and didn't bring a change of clothes. So I, the only thing I had to wear was shorts and a singlet right? <laughs> to a, like a premiere of a film. I thought, oh, no, what am I going to do? So I thought, oh, what I'll do is I'll, 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 I'll get there and then I'll wait till everyone's gone in and then I'll just sneak in up the back and find some seat way up in the corner and just sit there and watch the film and then go. And I thought, oh, that's a perfect plan. So I did that. You know, they let me in. Who's this guy wearing shorts and a singlet? And then, so I'm sitting there. And then, of course, George Miller comes in really late as well because he's about to intro the film. And he sits down next to me. <laughs> and I look over and I think, oh, no, that's George Miller. Oh, my God, I can't believe it. And then he looks over at me and he says, oh, Gary. Hi, Gary. And I said, oh, Hi. And I, I don't know what he was thinking, but he must have thought, wow, this guy's got a lot of nerve. You know, he's just turning up to my film yeah, dressed yeah. like that. He, know, must maybe, be really brilliant. he must be really brilliant to have that much self-confidence. <laughs> yeah, that's right. He's like, Gary doesn't think much of it. So, you know what, I'm going <laughs> to talk to him now. And I, I, I didn't say anything, actually. I didn't explain why I was wearing this. But he just said, oh, look, I've just flown in from L.A. And I, I saw one of your short films on the, on, the, on, the, on the plane as well, which I really loved. It was a... Um, a film I made called Final Core, which is about a guy stuck in an airport toilet with no toilet paper and they're calling his flight, which is kind of timely now. It was, you know, John Batchelor, and it was really funny. And anyway, we started talking. He said, look, if I ever make a sequel to this, would you be interested in, in getting involved, coming on board as, you know, as, initially just as a writer? And I said, yeah, for sure. As it turns out, I'm free for the next four years. Um, and so that's kind of how it happened. I sort of came on and I started working as a writer and then I came on as a co-director as well. And, um, and then we, you know, we made the film and then, of course, it came time to, you know, record all the voices. And, and that's when 
um, a lot of the actors came to Sydney. We recorded a lot of the the voices here. We do the voices first, and then you develop the animation from that. And and Robin Williams came out for for two weeks, um, which was just this amazing experience. Probably something I'll never forget. I mean, just meeting him uh, was incredible. He was just this this energy and so funny of Richard. I've never laughed so hard all the time. <laughs> like he was just so funny and, and it was really interesting. I I, I, I often used, used to think he had like a comedy Tourette's because if you talk to him one-on-one, he was very subdued, very quiet, um, very much the opposite. And then as soon as someone joined the conversation, it was like, bang, it would just, it, the jokes would start coming and, and funny jokes. It was just like nonstop. Um, anyway, he don't, we'd been there for about a week and then one of the guys who was, um, uh, Guy Garcia was playing one of the Amigos was flying back to LA. Like he'd done all his stuff and he was flying back. And they said to me, Hey, Gary, we're going to go out for drinks. Do you want to come? And I said, we're well, not going to believe it tonight. I've got a gig, um, a stand up gig at the sugar mill. And I said, well, look, why don't you guys come down and you know, you can share because they were all stand up comics. I said, you can share my spot. I'll go on, I'll bring you on, you know, we'll have a bit of a fun night, you can, you know, we'll say farewell that way. And as it turned, just at that moment, Robin Williams walks past and they turn to Robin and they say, hey, Robin, Gary's doing a comedy show tonight, do you want to come down? And he goes, oh, right, yeah, yeah, well, maybe, maybe, uh, maybe I will, see how we go. Yeah. And I thought, oh, my God, this will be nerve-wracking. And, and part of me didn't want him to come down because so I thought So this is like playing he, he guitar comes... in front of the Rolling Stones or something, isn't it, really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Oh, yeah, totally, totally. And, and it was, I just thought, ah, oh, but it'd be awesome if he did. That'd be amazing. So as it turns out, I, I go down to the sugar mill and Twitter had just begun then. And someone saw Robin Williams walk into the, the sugar mill, this, um, this club where they don't do comedy now, but they were back then. And, uh, suddenly word got out. I just saw Robin Williams walk into this room and very quickly, like in, in minutes, the place just suddenly got packed. And everyone came down. All the crew came down. Elijah and um, all the cast and and I, I was so I was I was one of those. I felt like I'd just started comedy again when I was back at the private bin that first night, right? And I was you know even hiding in the stairwell, just thinking, oh gosh, okay, Gary, don't die, because the last thing I want is to die in front of Robin Williams, and then the next day have to turn up. And him to go, yeah, so, you know, what else do you do? You know, uh, how long have you been doing this? Oh, yeah, keep at it. You know, you're doing, you know, just got to be brave. And <laughs> um, But as it turned out, it was, it was a magical night. I went on. It was impossible not to, you know, to, to kill. And, and then I brought on this guy called Garcia, who was this really funny Latino comedian. And, and um, he, you know, he started hammering Elijah Wood you know, making fun. I, I can't really tell you what he's saying on radio, but he was kind of referencing things about the ring that Elijah does with it, right? Yeah. And uh, and Elijah starts yelling, you know, yelling back, yeah, when it heats up, you can see the markings and all this <laughs> stuff. And then Robin Williams is sitting right next to Elijah Wood and he, he gets up and he starts doing Gollum. He starts, you know, my precious. Um, and, and, and starts walking through the crowd and the whole crowd, right? This is a tiny room as well. You got, there's probably like 200 people just packed in a room where there should only be a hundred. And the whole room just stands up and applauds. They all just start clapping. Like they're giving him a standing ovation before he's done anything. And he just weaves his way through the crowd and just pops up on stage and, and, and starts doing this impromptu, you know, 35 minute act. 
um, and, you know, just completely slays. And, and then afterwards he came up to me and he, and he said, oh, thanks, thanks for letting me do that. <laughs> I'm like, ah, I don't think that's the thanks that uh, you, I don't think you need to thank me, Robin. Um, but it was so, it was unforgettable. And it was interesting the next, because the next week and a half he was still recording voices and, um, after that, he was, he sort of, he, he looked at me slightly differently because he knew I was a comedian. And he said to me, oh, he said, I, I, I didn't realize you were one of us. Ah, um, yeah. which I, I, I really kind of, I, I, I really understood because I think comedians all understand that, you know, because we all, we all start off together and we all experience these kind of painful experiences of, of dying and the humiliation, but getting back up there. So we're almost like war veterans. So even though we've never met before, if you, if, if a comedian meets another comedian, there's this camaraderie. And I, I think he understood that. And I understood that when, you know, when he said, Oh, I think, you know, I didn't realize you were one of us. And he, he sort of treated me very differently as well. He used to always, you know, look to me and go, Gary, what do you, what, what do you think of that? Is that a good line? Like he'd always, you know, get me to question things, and I'd be there. Yeah, I think that's pretty funny, Robin. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I'd. And go he with would, that. in a film like that, even though you, you and George and others had, had written the script, he would improvise a lot. I take it. Oh, he'd he'd go he'd go off. Yeah, definitely. You know, you, you'd, it was like holding a horse. You'd just pull the reins back. But we'd loved it. We'd just go, yeah. And so much of what he would do would end up in the film, um, and really unexpected stuff. And I, I think that's the the beauty of these types of films as well where it's animation where you can just let someone go and then, you know, just mine the gold afterwards. Um, but, yeah, he, you know, there was hours and hours and hours of stuff that he did. You know, he just, he was, he, he, you know, Rebecca Dunamuno is very good at this where he just, just start riffing a poem just out of nowhere um, and just keep going. And I, I always found that amazing. I thought, wow, how can you do that? Yeah, it's incredible. A- it's a trick of nature, isn't it? Well, I'm very mm. pleased that back when you were six years old, you held your fire for the first few months and then let out a good line and got a laugh and decided at that point that this was for you. Uh, it's mm. been very nice hearing your story. Hey, Gary, thank you so much. And we'll see you on the other side of the bridge yes, when we I'm return to, to our little, little theatre for Thank God It's Friday. Thank you very much. Thanks, Richard. Thank God It's Friday with Richard Glover. Well, welcome back to our TGIF self-isolation series of conversations with some of Australia's favourite comedians. Next week, we'll catch up with Will Anderson and Gretel Colleen. But right now, it's the turn of our own Wendy Harmer, a pioneer of female stand-up comedy in this country. Wendy has also written books, created a TV series for children, starred in TV shows like The Big Gig, Gillies Report and many others. And had two times, one of them ongoing, in which she's been a dominant force in Sydney Breakfast Radio, really the queen of the joint. So how did it all begin? Well, she is here. Wendy, welcome. Thank you very much, Richard. Gosh, I loved hearing Gary Eck there. Wasn't he fascinating? It's a wonderful story of the Robin Williams night, isn't it? Absolutely. And, you know, I once, uh, years ago when I was at Today FM, I interviewed Robin Williams. It wasn't in person. It was only down the line. Anyway, he came on the, you know, on, on uh, on the line and he sounded really glum. And I said to him, are you okay? I mean, 
you know, you, you don't sound your usual up self. You know, are you all right? And he said, no, well, I'm not really. I did a gig last night and I bombed. They just weren't my people. I'm thinking, Robin Williams bombed? Bombed? How can that possibly happen? And this is like at the height of his fame. He'd just done Good Morning Vietnam, the whole thing. And he said, yeah, I'm down in the dumps. I did this gig and they weren't my crowd. So, I, I, I you know, there's all that, always that... A reality, really, there for stand-up comedians that you know that can happen. Well, that's what Gary was saying. You're you're all yeah. kind of war, war veterans in a kind of weird sort of way. You know, um, I've interviewed you once before about your life. It was for the Sydney Morning Herald. Mm. It was April 19, 1985. Oh, for goodness sake. You, you'd only given up print journalism one year before to really test out this idea of stand-up comedy. Mm. Um, so anyway, it was 35 years ago. So I thought I'd just ask you the same oh, questions. Goodness. That's all right, isn't it? <laughs> well, you know what? You sent me that article and I did read it because um, I was thinking about maybe writing my memoir. God, Lord knows no one needs another memoir, especially after yours, Richard Flesh wounds and you and I had, uh, you and I found a lot of um, parallel in that, a lot of camaraderie in that story of yours. And uh, so every now and then I look back and I look back at that interview that you conducted with me there to see if I've been telling lies over all these years. Have I embellished? Mm -hmm. Have I bent my story? Was I telling you the truth back then? And actually... I think I was. I think you're, I have been telling you, the truth. You, you, you were enormously frank. And sometimes people right at the start of their career are franker than they become later. Mm. So you talk in that interview 35 years ago about being born with a cleft palate mm -hmm. and that you, it, you say it made your father really push you. And mm. you say this thing which is kind of, oh, so, oh, you say he refused to listen to you unless, until you learned how to enunciate properly. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, yeah, this was tough love, you know, back in those days. It was in the 50s, early 60s, I guess. And Graham Innes, I launched his book and his uh, parents sort of gave him the same kind of tough love, said, you know, you're just the same as everybody else. Get up there and have a go at it. And uh, so um, uh, there were things that were very uh, difficult, I suppose, that um, Dad would have me standing on the kitchen table reading from the newspaper for visitors or uh, singing. I would sing behind the bathroom door, um, that kind of thing. And so, you know, I did learn to enunciate and to... to and um, But then he rewarded me, you know, years later because he's a school teacher with being the lead singer in the choir at Bendigo in the cathedral. I was the lead singer in front of 600 kids. But that kind of tough love continued till until the night I hosted the big gig and uh, I rang Dad and said, what did you think? And he said, I thought your diction was quite good. <laughs> it's, not really, it's not really an yes. upbringing that we understand all that well these days, I don't think. All those years of making you stand on the kitchen table, it finally mm. paid up for your dad. Um, you talk about your mum too, and so obviously you, you've got the, the cleft palate, and when you look in a mirror, you're, 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 you don't like what you see, and the kids are teasing you mercilessly at school because of that. And you say to your mum, you know, what can I do, mum? The kids are teasing me. That's right. 
And I remember this with great clarity. My mum says, you go and look in that mirror and when you find something to complain about, you come out and tell me. Well, I did go and look in the mirror and, of course, there was plenty to complain about. Um, You know, the kids at school called me flat face and eagle beak and I did look a bit like a cartoon character who'd walked into a door, uh, you know. But um, I was never able to come out and say... Uh, you know, well, actually, Mum, there is this... I just said nothing. Oh, there's nothing to complain about. And I guess Mum and Dad in those days... They were very young, Richard, by the way. I mean, I I was born when Mum was 17 and Dad was 23. And, you know, four, three other kids came very close behind that. But uh, the, So I was just sort of pushed out the door and told to get on with it. But as I say, I think it was parenting, you know, in those days. Where does the, um, from that picture you've painted of the little girl who doesn't like the, what she sees in the mirror and, and all of that, where does the crazy brave come from? Because from that, you then, in the end, there's a period of journalism and all this sort of stuff, but in the end, you become really the first woman in the country to walk onto a stand up stage and say, you know, throw me whatever you like, I will handle it. Mm. Oh, well, gosh, it's an interesting one, isn't it? I I think I got to the point in my um, mid-20s, about 27 or so, and I'd been a journalist and, you know, I'd been doing all that with um, firstly the Geelong Geelong Advertiser and then the Sun News Pictorial. And it happened one night that I was sent out on an assignment to go and talk about the so-called new cabaret, this great exciting thing that had come out of England. And I sat there in the audience and I watched, my gosh, you won't believe it, Steve Visard was on stage and Gina Riley was on stage. I mean, you know, they were in their 20s as well. And I just sat there and thought, wow, this is amazing. I fell in love with the with the words and I fell in love with the ideas. And then I thought, oh, my gosh, how can I do this? And I think I got to the stage at, where I just said, because, you know, people had always been judging me, that I want you to look past me, past my, uh, you know, my face and all that, and I want you to see who I really am. And so I think that motivation came from when where I was a little kid. Um, so that, I think that was the deep motivation. I want you to see beyond who I am, but also that... Um, I was just bubbling over with ideas. You know, I often think it's a funny thing, Richard. You know how you know every um, every now and then there are those um, magazine articles where they say write a letter to your younger self. You know those ones? Yeah, yeah. Well, I often think my younger self should write a letter to me because I do not know why I did that. I seriously don't know where that came from, you know, where and I where the self-belief. I mean, there's a self, there's self, there's amazing level of self-belief in, in any stand-up, but I, mm. I think particularly your trajectory into it, the fact you're a woman at the time when it's so difficult. Where does the self-belief come from? Well, I don't know. I'll be quite honest with you. Well, uh, let me tell you this. You say my dad was a hard taskmaster on one point and, you know, at one turn, and yes, he was. But then again, he was also my greatest cheerleader. And we lived in the country. Dad was a a rural school teacher in, you know, in country Victoria. So we'd often find ourselves on long drives and Dad would sort of talk to me and I was going to be Australia's first woman prime minister and I was going to do this and I was going to do 
that. So his aspirations for me were very grand and he invested a lot of uh, self-belief in me at the same time pushing me. So it's a very interesting idea, isn't it, that I, you know, pushing kids really hard and uh, giving, but at the same time giving them that self-belief. I don't know whether I could do it for my own children to push them that hard, but I, I'd like to think I've given them that self-belief as well. Mm, mm. Wendy Harmer's here, TJF in ISO. Tell me about that moment that you finally walk out. I think it's the joke probably in, in, in Melbourne, but you walk out, uh, one of the first women to ever do this in this country, when you walk out in front of an audience of a mixed audience, but the men in the audience in particular just so probably not understanding what they're seeing. Well, you know, it was a lovely, lovely thing because um, I, a lot of people say, oh, it's so hard starting out as a woman. But I was really incredibly lucky, Richard, because at the time that I began, there were the, you know, the Richard Stubbs and the Peter Rose Thorns and, the, you know, the um, Glenn Robbins, all that mob. They were, and they were beautiful, lovely men. And really, there were no chicks on the bill. So they were thrilled to have me along. And one of the best compliments that I got, uh, one of them came up to me afterwards and said, you know, we just heard a sound that we haven't heard before. And I said, what was that? And they said, it's the tone, it's a different kind of laughter. And it was actually women laughing at jokes that were made for them. And it had, you know, it was probably a bit higher pitched because I think uh, what was happening a lot of the time was uh, women would, you know, girls would go along with their boyfriends and wives with husbands and they would laugh at what the blokes laughed at. And then I came along with brand new jokes designed just for them. Mm. And, you know, it it was a really funny thing before I... uh, before I did that initial gig, everyone said, oh, my gosh, you must be so, uh, you must be so nervous. It, you, you must be really, really worried about it and you might die and what's going to happen. And I'm not a very nervous person, I've got to say. I'm just, I don't know what's happened. They're all cauterised, all my nerve endings, I don't know. But anyway, I got up there and I still remember it as clear as day. There was this epiphany. I stood on that stage. Someone gave me a microphone I said, hang on a minute, you mean I get to talk into the microphone, people listen and I get paid? Is uh, Hello? This is the best deal ever and I've never looked back. And so it has been from then on. Wendy Harmon's here. We're going to talk in a moment about the, the move into television and then into radio. Twice Queen of uh, Sydney Radio. How's that been? The children's books, of course. But let's hear a little bit from that television career. It involved things like the big gig, the Gillies Report, but also a long series of, of world championship debating. Here's Wendy on the topic that football, well, it's stupid. Football is so stupid that not everyone can play. To qualify, you have to have a boot size bigger than your IQ. (laughs) Sorry, football is stupid, and the blokes who play it are stupid too. How stupid! I'm glad you asked. These are blokes who wear their names on the outside of their jumpers. about two families who play, the Tuies and the Winfields. 
These are blokes who wear two pairs of shorts at the same time. These are blokes who secure their ears to their head with electrical tape. Now, in what other pursuit do you have to do that? I mean, apart from oral sex. footballers appeared in calendars with no clothes on. You know, the ones with the smooth, unscarred torsos and the, all their joints intact and the full complement of cartilage. They're the before pictures. When they sustain enough neuron damage, they become commentators. Championship debating with, uh, with Wendy Harmer, Denton and, and, and others. I love that the names, they wear the names on the outside of their jumpers. <laughs> yeah. They were great days, the, uh, the uh, great debate days with Andrew Denton. I think we did a, a series about ten of those. Um, and that was after the big gig finished and we got to play in old Parliament House and we went round Australia and, yeah, g- fabulous times um, on, on those great debates. But, but there was a lot of co- – there was a period, it was quite relatively short period, but there's a period when there's a lot of comedy on uh, Australian television, particularly on the ABC, but Gillies Report, all, all involving you, but the Gillies Report, big gig and then the debates. That's right. We, you know, it was a real golden age and I, I feel really very sorry that we don't have the kind of uh, comedy that we used to. I mean, there was the comedy company and there was Fast Forward. I mean, but these were the days when, um, you know, television networks could afford to hire comedians and costume makers and makeup artists and set designers and, and you know, the golden age of sketch comedy and that's where I found myself. And, you know, as the ringmaster of the big gig, I mean, did that get any better? I mean, live to air, Richard, can you, you know, I know we do live to air mm-hmm. every day, but uh, live to air on TV, I mean, what a treat that was. It was and, and hardly hardly tried by anyone else in the world now, you know, never mind then. Mm. Uh, very un- un- unusual, very game. Again, we come back mm. to that, uh, that uh, you know, your nerve en- endings all being cauterised somehow. <laughs> well, so you suddenly at that point, you're much more of a public figure than you were when I first interviewed you for the, for the Herald. What's, what's that period like when suddenly everyone recognises you in the street? Well, you know, you're never lonely. It's lovely. Um, uh, I mean, I, I remember standing on a street corner one, once with a, um, a TV person and, uh, and a car drove by. I might have been with Darren Hinch. And I was standing on a street corner waiting for a taxi and a car drove by. They went, G'day, Wendy! Rack off, Darren. <laughs> so when you're the comedian, you know, they, they, you know, they like you. And I'm, there's a really funny story, which I always love. People love me relating this one. But I was in Paran Market years ago and I was wandering around there. And this lady kept following me. And, um, and she followed me to the peaches and then she followed me around to where I got the cheese. And I, and I thought, in the end, I thought I should turn around and find out, you know, why she's following me. And uh, I said, oh, hello, you know, my name's Wendy. Can I, you know, can I help you? She said, I think you're vulgar. And then she (laughs) stomped off. (laughs) So, you know, it's best not to ask, I find. But no, people are unrelentingly kind. I mean, I know they're really mean on social media, but they're really very, usually pretty kind in person. 
You heard Gary Eck talking about the sort of comedian's mind, how mm. you kind of question everything. You look around at the world and uh, don't sort of accept it as it is, but sort of question how what's odd about it and then hopefully find these things which other which then chime with other people mm-hmm. which they've recognized themselves but not quite articulated how do you how do you define the comedian's eye i think they're trained observers i think what happens in comedy i think is that comedians are slightly just out of step with life they or they just keep one little you know one degree removed from it and they observe and then they come back with a report on what the rest of us have been doing and that's what's really funny about it we think oh well we were doing that that's very interesting the other thing that gary said i thought was fascinating where he said well people get really really cross with a comedy when it doesn't work Mm. and i remember the wonderful the late great john clark uh, explaining this to me and he said something really interesting he said um, if you promise tragedy and you don't deliver it no one really minds like you know if you promise to make people cry no one really minds but if you promise to make people laugh and you don't deliver that people get really cross about it and I thought, well, um, you know, what is that about? And I think it's this. I think if you set up the premise uh, that you are going to make people laugh, that um, entails uh, a lot of trust between you and the audience. I mean, the audience, you think about a person who's watching comedy and they're relaxed and their arms are by their side and they're, you know, leaning back. And so they've kind of opened their hearts to you and... I think what happens there, then if you don't deliver, there is a sort of a betrayal of trust, if you like, Mm -hmm. but not in the same way that if you, you know, promise to make people cry. I mean, people don't, you know, stagger out of the death of Camille going, well, I didn't actually laugh at that. That was terrible. (laughs) But, but, and, and the other thing about it too, of course, is that comedy is very particular to who you are, to your family, to the way you were brought up. I don't think there would be many people who would uh, agree on who their favourite comedian Mm -hmm. is. Everyone would have a different idea of who their favourite comedian is. So I guess most comedians are working on the law of averages in a way. They're saying, well, what's the greatest number of people here who are going to like what I do? And, And if you try to think, I want everyone to enjoy what I do and laugh I want to do at what I want to do. Well, you're not going to do comedy and you're on a really bad path, I think. Yeah, so I thought well, that was back, very interesting, We're back to Robin, John. Robin, William, Robin Williams, aren't we? Yeah, uh, you quite know, right. They, yeah, they, yeah. Just, they just weren't my crowd. Wendy Harmer's here. Now, just listen into a little bit of this TV theme. La, 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 do, do, do. She talked about a whole lot of things with Wendy from her time as the as the Queen of Sydney Commercial Radio and now Queen of ABC Radio in Sydney. All the novels she'd written for for adults and for uh, young Australians. But this is maybe the thing that's uh, been the most international of your successes. Pearly, tell us about Pearly and the books and also the TV show. Well, uh, Pearly in the Park is a, a series that I wrote for little kids. 
and I wrote them for little daughter Maeve when she was a babe because um, most of the fairy books that I picked up, they were like, you know, they were, you know, tarting themselves up to go to a ball to meet a prince and I thought, oh, I don't want Maeve to be reading all that. I'd rather have a character that had a bit of daring do and so I invented Pearly and especially for little kids in the city who maybe weren't able to go and look for a fairy at the bottom of the garden or in the forest and, uh, yeah, it it just, you know, it chimed, I guess, um, it, you know, in so many languages and all over the world. A real disappointment, though. This is interesting because we were talking um, uh, with, uh, I can't remember his name now, but the, but the bloke who voices Bluey's dad. Um, the other, just yesterday, oh, the other day, I think, with Robbie in the morning. Mm. And he is able to use that broad, wonderful Australian accent. And I was uh, just saying to him, you know, what a revelation that is, because when we made the TV series, we had to do a co-production with Canada. And so Pearly ended up with an Australia, with an American accent, like a kind of, hi, my name's Pearly, you know, and and I, I, that was a real disappointment. So to see the success of Pearly using the Australian vernacular, mind you... Uh, uh, bluey with... Uh, bluey, uh, bluey rather, yeah, Bluey yeah, with yeah. the Australian vernacular. Mind you, I must say, that it was very funny working with the uh, Canadian scriptwriters sometimes, and one a Canadian scriptwriter wrote a line for a, a, one of the little fairies in the series that said... G'day, Pearly. Geez, I'm knackered. <laughs> <laughs> and actually got to air. I, you know, I, I did, I'm a bit lost in the translation there, Richard. No, no, I'm with the lady in the markets in Melbourne. You're vulgar. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't Dave, write that. Hang on. <laughs> Dave McCormack is Bluey's dad, by the yes, way. Of Wendy course, Hummer yes, yes. Is he was, he's He's fab. Just, just finally, you know, for 11 years at Today FM and, and mm-hmm. then more recently with Robbie uh, since 2016, mm-hmm. getting up really early in the morning uh, to go on radio and talk to people about your life and your deepest beliefs and your humour and all of that, what gets you up at that, at that hour? Why do you keep doing it? How can you do it for so long? Oh, well, it's just, it's just it's like that first day, Richard, isn't it? It's like that first night. Someone's giving me the microphone. People are listening and I'm paid. I mean, you know, what's not to love? One of the lovely, lovely things about it, of course, is uh, the partnership that I've found with Robbie um, later in life because I've had quite a lot of partnerships over the years. And Robbie and I weren't what you call an organic partnership. We didn't mix in the same circles or anything like that. Only, you know, knew of each other remotely. But what is so lovely um, at, at this stage Stage of life is to find a partner and just watch that uh, relationship um, develop and blossom and find the rhythm of somebody. That's I think that's the joy of it too. Getting into the rhythm, finding the jokes, talking to people. You know, I don't know whether you saw that ad where I say, "Oh, Mrs. Have a chat." Are they? Are they have they played that at all? Yeah, I think yeah, they, yeah, might, yeah, they might have done yeah. <laughs> about a million times. But yeah, I'm a people person in the end. And uh, yeah, I just like being in the you know the in the thrum of it all. And you know something, I never thought as a little kid growing up in the uh, in country Victoria all those years that every single morning I would get to drive across the Sydney Harbour Bridge and have it all to myself. And you know that thrill has never left me. And what would that little girl, that five-year-old girl, standing on the table trying to enunciate, what would she think of Wendy now? Oh, I, I hope that she would be 
gosh, I hope that she would be amazed. I mean, I hope that she would... I, 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 I don't know what she'd think, but I, what I think about that little girl is, uh, yep, um, it was all ahead of us, babe. <laughs> it's all ahead of us, and it still is. Hey, Wendy, thank you so much. Thanks, Richard. There's Wendy Harmer. Thanks for being part of our TGIF in ISO series again. Uh, next week, Will Anderson and Gretel Colleen will continue the series, which has seen us meet, yeah, Gary, Wendy, Rebecca, well, lots of people. Uh, until then, I'm Richard Glover, and thank God it's Friday! Thank God it's special letter from America with Tommy Dean. Yes, it is now time for another letter from America with Tommy Dean. In fact, I think our last letter from America with Tommy as our TGF regular returns home to the US only to get stuck there by COVID. But I think he and his son, Asher, have managed to navigate their way safely back home soon. Tommy, hello once again. Hello. Now, when we spoke last week, you were in a rapidly dwindling household, uh, whereby we, we learned that when you leave a rented accommodation in the United States, you've got to leave it entirely empty of household goods. So you'd managed to give away most of the stuff. Is there anything left? There is only the dining room table that I made a deal with the person who agreed to take it off my hands. I get to keep that till Saturday. <laughs> How are you going to eat dinner after that? Uh, well, we only have Sunday. We're, we're out of the house Monday morning. So uh, she'll take the table on Saturday, and then we will have standing fun, so which is... I believe is all the rage these days anyway. It's like working from a standing desk, only, you know, we'll just pretend like we're at a burger counter. So we'll just eat at the counter standing up, and then we'll, we will retire to our floor, which is spacious. Do you have to get rid of the beds as well? The beds. Uh, in fact, the beds went today. And let me tell you, I spent quite a few days worried about the beds because I thought there's no chance that I'm going to be able to give real people old mattresses. So I've been exploring the dump. I've been exploring some sort of pick up and destroy, some sort of spring recycling. And that was really my mistake. All I had to do was say, free mattress. And I had to fight people. A lot of people wanted free mattresses. I was a young girl uh, who herself is living with a friend and sleeping on the floor. And she felt that my bed was better than the floor. And I said, that's exactly the same attitude that got me this mattress, Missy. It was made for you. Because didn't we meet the mattress early on in these letters from America? Because I seem to remember a stain. Well, you say it's singular. <laughs> I prefer to see it as the art of life. <laughs> That's what stains really are on mattresses, as the, the essence of your being fuses with that where you spend the most time of your life. It is the outline of all my dreams, fantasies, yay, nightmares. So 10 months back in the old country with the, with the young son, uh, the young Australian son, what, what have you learned about, as we come to an end, what have you learned about, the, about your old country? Well, I'm trying to build it out. I feel... I feel almost overwhelmed as it all sort of hits me here at the end. Uh, there is a part of me that is still deeply connected to this country. You know, you're surprised at how quickly you fall back into the slang. Um, early childhood memories are the same. 
Uh, like I used to always make jokes that I never quite fit in in certain circles in Australia because I didn't grow up with Countdown. Countdown sort of sets our age group in Australia. I don't have that, but I do have Captain Kangaroo and Wallace and Ladmo and all of the things that America lives on uh, in their early morning youthful cartoon days and their nighttime partyings. Uh, I was there when MTV opened up. So, uh, you know, there was a certain cultural awareness that I felt more connected with as I talked to people and got around. But at the same time, there is a deep malaise of mediocrity that has invaded this country. And it may have always been here, and I just didn't notice it because I was part of it. <laughs> what, what are its signs? It couldn't be more perfectly accentuated than by the highways of fast food and gas station stops all over the place. Homeowner, you know, rights. You know, if you live in all these neighborhoods, sort of have rules. So, like, you know, you have to paint your house a certain color. You can't have a certain, you know, there's only certain plants are allowed to be put out front. Hedges must be a certain height. You can't park in front of your house. You have to be in your driveway. That, ha that happens with strata buildings here, you know, a block of flats or something. But this is across a whole neighborhood, is it? Yes, it's like that for neighborhoods. Um, it's deeply evil. <laughs> One of the things you told us that really surprised me was you said you can't put your sheets out. Absolutely. That's exactly part of that whole process. Uh, you can't hang things in the backyard. You can't have unsightly stuff. It's really quite a fine print sort of contract you sign when you buy a house. Okay, this is not some special, and you're not living in some special whiz-bang neighborhood. No, no, it's just <laughs> each neighborhood sort of sets its own rules to keep itself tidy. Uh, so you, so you, literally, you literally cannot have a hill's hoist or some version of it in the backyard with your sheets on it. No, and if you happen to have an excellent balcony, such as we do, you can't drape your sheets out over the balcony to enjoy the sunshine and freshen them up. You must use the source that God truly intended, and that's electricity in a dryer. <laughs> but I thought it was the land of the free. I mean, there's dudes with guns going down to the, the governor's office to demand freedom. Can't they demand freedom for your hills hoist? And this, see, this freedom is to dry. Exactly where I feel the divisive nature of this country is, is that they have failed to understand what freedom means. <laughs> and they're constantly in a hip hypocrisy. Hippocratic? That sounds like a Hypocritical. Hypocritical argument. Constantly. Like we talked last week of the mask. The mask thing has not abated at all. We have people deeply decrying the overreach of government. And I will not wear a mask. The government will not tell me to wear a mask. And, oh, by the way, Mr. Smith, your hedge is four inches too high. Trip that. <laughs> or there will be a fine. And they never see the, see the break in all of that. You know, like this whole idea of rights has made the individual feel like it is him. Not rights for the community or the society, but it is my right. My right to drive through that stop sign. Yeah. Why should I stop? But as you say, but at the same time, not demanding rights to dry your pajamas in the sun. I know. That's what I mean. It's this constant battle between this is what we will have the right to do, and then we will give up this other right because we feel we've gained something from it. I'm not sure. Like, I think the deep frustration with the gun lobby is that the Constitution, already being slightly misread, but let's say that we take it at the way they've argued it, that the Constitution gives you the right to bear arms 
Uh, but now we are deeply conflicted because there doesn't seem to be any way to shoot those damn things legally. Why didn't the Constitution include the fact that we need to fire those things to feel powerful? <laughs> so it's a land of loopholes. This is another problem I'm seeing everywhere. So many loopholes. Everybody trying to get around the edge. We want freedom, but then we make a law because we recognize compromise. But then we got to find a loophole to bring us back around the corner to freedom. <laughs> We're a Christian nation, and one of the Ten Commandments quite clearly says, Thou shalt not kill, but state by state, we have written more loopholes into the law to make sure that there are ways to go about that. It is deeply, deeply troublesome. But yet, then the flip again is that there is so much friendliness, even if at times it's scary. Uh, like today, I found myself out the front of the house uh, ripping up, packing a bunch of old boxes from things we've acquired and putting it in the recycling bin. And then a man uh, suddenly started coming at me, holding what appeared to be a large knife. And as he got closer, <laughs> I realized it was a large knife. <laughs> and then he said, hey, this might help you cut those boxes up. Uh. And I said, it's so friendly. Everybody's been friendly, helpful, but then at the same time, argumentative and, and deeply stupid. And I don't know if that's a problem with the world and I'm just focusing on it here at the moment, but it just seems that for all the noise, they are not arguing for the really good things. Like, I still find it curious. You would think that COVID-19 would focus America on the fact that our healthcare system is suffering and perhaps now would be a good time to start revisiting universal healthcare for all, given that uh, perhaps we may all need it very quickly. <laughs> <laughs> and yet they still hold on to the fact that no, no, only me and me. I I have a right to health care because I have a good job and I have insurance. But isn't that the whole point of a, of, a, of a virus, that you can be as insured and as wealthy as you like, but then you catch it from the bloke who's homeless down the road, who hasn't got any insurance and any health and any ability to, you know, wash his hands every five seconds because he hasn't got, you know. So true. It is so true, but that's it. just wraps right back around to the thesis. They just don't know how to ask the right questions and argue the right arguments. They only are focused on self. What do I have? And there, of course, I mean, I say that, but there are a lot of people running charities and there are a lot of people doing a lot of very good work. Uh, Frontline supporters, all of the health services who are completely still under stress. Um, people that work in supermarkets are now superheroes. So there's a curious shift in who we value in society. Uh, but ultimately, at the at the deep argument, the individual is still somehow more important than the group. And I don't know how they're ever going to reconcile that. Don't you think Australians are just as stupid as uh, Americans, but we talk less, so it's less obvious? You know what? And you're cuter when you do it. <laughs> that may just be how I see it. But you sound better. Your slang is better. Your arguments are more fun. Your sense of humor makes it come down easier. I agree. I think stupidity is a world epidemic. And the, and the ruling classes, I think, are celebrating that and driving it home. But if I have a choice between stupid Americans or stupid Australians, I think I'm going to go with stupid Australians. They're just more delightful. Gee, you've got a bad, haven't you? Did, when you first set off on this adventure, did you, did you understand that you might fall out of love with your own country, uh, by your own country, I mean your birth country, as, as thoroughly as you have? I actually had felt that I was going to reconnect and be able to celebrate the pieces that I love the most. But then I realized that I am as guilty in a, 
hypocrisy fashion as I've been talking about. I'm just as guilty of the same thought processes that I am condemning them for. Uh, for all of my concerns about the community of America as an individual, I feel like they kept me away from the things that I had a right to have. I was put in the wrong place. I picked the wrong part of America. The things that I truly love are my friends and my family, and I was kept separated from them, and no one ever let me have a gun. <laughs> I got my driver's license, and I never got to drive a car. It's hunting season, and I didn't get to go hunting. Have you confessed to your mum and dad and maybe your brothers how much uh, askance you look at the country now? How, how, how thoroughly Australian you've become? I think they're mildly aware, but no, I would never speak it out loud. Uh, my brother works for the United States government. My mother works for the, or she used to for all her life, worked for the Arizona state government. Uh, my dad is of the state government. Uh, they, they have all been people of the government, therefore of the country, all of their lives. And as much as I have disappointed them in many ways, I would rather not focus on the one that would be the biggest. <laughs> I would just let them continue to be slightly concerned for me because I chose a life of entertainment. Yeah. Look, I kind of know what you, I mean, I, you know, I've only been to America twice and I loved it. And I thought the people were amazingly friendly, but there was this one moment where we were in a Chinese restaurant uh, having some lunch and people were ordering gloopy cocktails to have with their Chinese meal. And I thought at that point, you people don't know how to live. It's so true. They just don't reach high enough. I just feel like they felt that they achieved it. Like, you know, like America hit some sort of height. I'm going to guess 1967. And right there, it kind of froze in their mind. This is as good as it gets. We rule the world. We own the moon. Life is ours. And it just sort of slowly went downhill from there. How's but your son feel though? Your son, your son, your Australian son's more patriotic about the old country than you are. He loves it. And uh, I can't help but come to the conclusion that I have raised a fully mediocre child. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm glad for him. I'm glad. Like I, 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 I'm glad that he has no interest in what I do. So therefore he has never heard me talk about any of this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I keep my opinions to myself. Uh, he's had a fabulous time. And so I am thrilled for him that everything he is taking away from this, I mean, outside of the disappointment of uh, the last semester because of uh, all of this business, and even that he was quite stoic about. Um, but he's made some really excellent friends, uh, some very excellent families that he's now well intertwined with. And if he continues to chase his dream of going to further education uh, back here later in life, you know, he has certainly put down some excellent foundations to make that happen. What do you think he likes about the culture that you can't see? There's a lot more freedom. Teenagers here, and I, and I don't know how to judge this against Australia, only because this is my first encounter with it, so I didn't really see it. He would have been my first encounter with it in Australia. Uh, but everybody has, even though he doesn't have his own car, most of his friends have cars. They have easy access to freedom. Jobs, you know, for them, fast food jobs are plentiful and provide enough pocket money to keep things going. So At like you're, talk, you're talking about the average 17-year-old would have a car, yeah? Yes. Oh, absolutely. Petrol's cheap. Uh, insurance is paid for by mom. Uh, and parents are quite happy for the teenagers to get out of the house. But he has very much enjoyed uh, feeling grown up this year as he made his way to most places and did his job and had his room. And he was quite uh, annoyed when he came home here tonight from his job at McDonald's to find out that he uh, has nothing in his bedroom anymore. Where'd my mattress go? <laughs> Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, we, we sold that. Where's my TV? Yeah, we sold that.
Where's my Xbox? Sold it. We're leaving on Monday, man. <laughs> and he he understands he's got to go into uh, lockdown in a hotel for two weeks when he gets back. I believe he is intellectually aware of it. <laughs> I do not believe he is prepared for the reality of it. I will know more next week. And is it a complicated journey home, or are you managing to do it in one a couple of leagues? Uh, as it stands now, it looks fine. It's been complicated in that airlines kept having flights available, and then a week later realized it was no longer viable, shut it down, re, you know, find a new date, shut that down. It just kept collapsing and collapsing and collapsing. So we think that we have a flight now that is guaranteed to actually leave on Tuesday. And then we have to fly back to San Francisco. So we have a day in San Francisco, which is only the third most infected city in America. So that's good. <laughs> and then we'll come home and probably quarantine is a good idea, given what we're going to have to go through to get there. And, um, uh, have, you know, to point out the obvious, if it gets canceled for another week, it means a week sleeping on the floor. It, uh, it does. It means a week on the floor and eating out of one bowl that we share with a couple of plastic spoons he stole from McDonald's. <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, we'll get by. You know, I don't, I've never felt like we've been put upon on this entire trip. If there's one thing I have seen here is uh, the deep inequality uh, versus haves and have-nots. And we still sit, uh, for all of my complaints, I could easily be looked up over this last 10 months of this broadcast. Uh, the reality is I still very much want for nothing and am very well taken care of. And I have nothing to complain about. So if I have to sleep on a hardwood floor for a couple of nights, by golly. I'll get my friends to write a country song about it. <laughs> Is it sort of obviously more unequal society than Australia? Ah, that's a, I'm going to say yeah, only because the, oh, maybe no, yeah. I don't know, it's pretty even. You know, like, like Double Bay versus Blacktown, that deeply exists. I think, but you know what, the town that I'm in here is, is very much, you know, middle class would be the high end here. There is a lot of very low-income housing and families struggling uh, to get by in what was already a small and difficult economic town and has only gotten worse as things around here shut down and got harder. So there's actually what down below my house is a big parking lot area that used to be the farmer's market, uh, and now it's sort of the Saturday food bank. And then to see how much traffic goes there, it, start, it opens up at like 5.30 a.m., and from 5.30 to 10.30, like five hours of just nonstop beat-up cars flowing through just to pick up a sack of goods to keep them going for another week. Okay, because this is real, real small-town America we're talking about. When you're not in a big city or anything. Oh, not even. No, no, no. This is, I think, population 25,000. No, this is very classic Midwestern small town. Uh, so that's, that's, a lot, that's a lot of people going hungry in a small town, isn't it? Oh, absolutely, especially in uh, what is technically an agricultural area. Um, so in some ways, some of the area around here is better off because for all of the failure of the national supply chain, much of that originates more or less in this zone. So it gets brought in, or it's already here, might be the better way to put it. But uh, there's a real sense that this pandemic has exposed how the rationalization of major industry at all levels has really weakened the infrastructure across the board. Mm. And you can see, you, know, you can just see it unraveling. This so, is the view from the hardwood floor. <laughs> it's affecting his mood. 
<laughs> give this man I, a mattress. I don't know why I'm focusing on having nothing as I stand here in my household of nothing. <laughs> well, just finally, what are you looking forward to most about coming home? Look, this, I, for all that talk of mediocrity, one of the first things I am absolutely desiring is a good old-fashioned Australian meat pie. I have longed for pastry and stew meat together the way they were meant to be. I look forward to having Vegemite on toast with no one looking at me funny. And mostly, mostly, I look forward to people at all times seeming like they're asking me a question regardless of what they're saying. God, I miss that. Tommy, you'll be good to have you back home. Will it? Will it? <laughs> we'll talk next week from quarantine, hopefully here in Sydney. Hopefully, and I swear I'm going to be just surrounded by meat pies and wedges with sour cream and sweet chili. Do they have that at quarantine? I sure hope so. Well, I, I hope you get, you know, the Four Seasons or something like that, because I think you deserve a good mattress <laughs> after what you'll have been through. Hey, uh, Tommy, talk next week and you can give us an update from what, uh, what quarantine in Sydney feels like. I absolutely will. But can I just say that for the last 10 months, it's been an absolute delight to stay in contact with that, which is most important. So thank you to all of the TGIF listeners for making this uh, worth doing. I missed you all terribly, and I look very much forward to seeing you all live in our little plastic chairs, in our tiny little theatre, in our little corner of fun we call Friday. When we get across the bridge to the other side. Hey, Tommy, thank you. Cheers, see you soon. That was Special Letter from America with Tommy Dane. So there you go, our final letter from America, it looks like, from Tommy Dean, but we'll talk to him next week, see what the journey back was like through infested San Francisco and into quarantine in a Sydney hotel. You're listening to ABC Radio Sydney.